Now, just as we did last um, time we celebrated the Lord's Supper, we're looking at one of the seven sayings of, uh, from the cross. And this time we're looking at the second one of those sayings. And, these will be, and this is again found in Luke 23. Now, last time we looked at the first, which was in verse 34 of Luke 23, where Christ says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Well, this look, we look at the second saying found in Luke 23. But let's look and be reminded a little bit of what's going on in this scene. Christ is being taunted by the crowd, the rulers and chief priests, the Roman guards. He has been nailed to the cross. He is beginning the suffering strain of a slow suffocation. And amid this pain and the mocking of the others present, Christ has displayed his mercy and compassion by praying for the Father to forgive those who are ignorantly crucifying their Lord. Now, as was the custom, a plaque was placed above him listing the reason for his crucifixion, written in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. It said, this is the King of the Jews. And here we begin this week, starting in Luke 23, verse 39. Then one of the criminals who, who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. So in verse 39 here, we have the mocking thief. The mocking thief. Jesus was crucified with two condemned criminals. Now Luke uses a word that is translated criminal here in verse 39, and uses the same word in verses 32 and 33, where he introduces uh, them just briefly. And that's a little bit of a unique word. Um, <clears throat> Matthew and Mark use another word that uh, means thief or robber when it's translated. It's a kind of a lighter word. This word that Luke uses is a little bit heavier. It's the idea of an evildoer, one who deliberately does evil and is deserving of punishment. So these are bad guys that are being crucified. These aren't just some randomly selected uh, uh, criminals or just some randomly selected Jews that are crucified just to show Roman strength. These were bad guys. These were hardened criminals. These guys were sinners in every meaning of the word. Now, if we back up to verse 32 and verse 33, we'll read these quickly. And there were also two others, criminals, led away to be put to death, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and one on the left. Now, this, these verses recall the prophecy of Isaiah 53, verse 12, which reads, Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and, make interse and makes intercession for the transgressors. So this is kind of our scene set up. Now, we have these criminals crucified at the same time Christ is. And the one thief, I think we don't know for sure which one, calls out 
amid the other mocking and calls out to Jesus and adds to it. He says, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. This jab from the condemned man is filled with unbelief and selfishness. In continuing that trite call for Jesus to save, the man calls out in sarcasm. He says, are you not the Christ? Save yourself. He's saying almost as, for the sake of argument, you're the Christ. Well, then save yourself. Oh, and save us. He adds with callousness, this selfish plea to be saved from the cross as well. And we see here Christ, the righteous one, dying, being taunted by the unrighteous. Now, the accounts of Matthew and Mark note that both the criminals were blaspheming Jesus. Matthew 27, verse 44 says, And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Mark 15, verses 31 and 32. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. But Luke's account only records one of the criminals mocking Jesus. Now, some take this and then try and argue that Luke's account can't be historically accurate since it disagrees with Matthew and Mark. But it is possible that Luke had another source that told him more detail what was going on here and gave him more detail of this account. And we see this more detail in the next set of verses, beginning in verse 40. But the other said, but the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you under seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So in verses 40 to 42, we see the confessing thief. The confessing thief. The verses 40 and 41 shows that this, that the other criminal here is rebuking the first. He is responding to what the, the mocking thief said. And we don't know for sure what caused this criminal's to change his view, but he does. MacArthur says that he had initially joined the others in reviling and blaspheming Christ, but then God opened his heart to the truth and miraculously, powerfully, sovereignly, instantly granted him faith and eternal life. Possibly the thief heard Christ's prayer for forgiveness of those crucifying him. And that was the catalyst to bring him around to trust Christ. We don't know for sure. But the penitent thief sees himself as receiving what he rightly deserves and recognizes it as God's judgment. So he came to fear God and God's judgment. In responding to the other thief, he says, do you not even fear God? Unbelievers don't fear God or his judgment. 
This thief understood that though his sentence was handed down by a human judge and was just, he had no desire to face the divine judgment of God. True salvation is not about salvation from material need or low self-esteem. True salvation is salvation from God's judgment, justice, and wrath. Now, the penitent thief also recognized his own sinfulness. He said, we indeed justly, for we received the due rewards. We are under the same condemnation. We are dying on the cross. Why justly? Because we're receiving what we should be paid. He recognized that he, that he has committed wrong. He sinned and now receiving the earthly punishment for his crimes and realizes that God will judge perfectly and recognizes that even that now he is receiving in partially God's judgment. <clears throat> he knows that he can offer God nothing. And this statement is one of recognizing his sinfulness and one of repentance. Now, verse 41 also shows that this thief confesses and testifies about Jesus. He shows belief in Jesus. He says, but this man has done nothing wrong. This is not just a statement that Jesus had not committed a crime, but he was confessing of his character being innocent. This was in stark contrast to the character of the thieves themselves suffering crucifixion. This is the third time in this chapter that someone has declared Jesus's innocence. Pilate does it. Herod does it by sending him back to Pilate. And now the thief. Now some say this man didn't really respond to Christ. But everything Luke has recorded here in, of his speech is an expression of faith. It's an expression of faith of what he learned while facing death. His heart confessed belief in Jesus in assessing Jesus's character. And in verse 42, we see that the penitent thief moves from faith and belief to requesting something of Jesus. And we see kind of uh, in his faith, he makes this request. He humbly asks something of the Savior. Now, there's a slight uh, textual variant here. The King James and New King James reads, Then he said to Jesus, Lord. While other translations read, And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This isn't a huge concern or an issue. However, I think more literal translations take the second option. Now, why is that important? Because the penitent thief is the only one in the scene to address Jesus by his name. So taking the second option of the variant saying, then he said, to, then he said Jesus, remember me. It shows a level of intimacy between the thief and his Lord. He calls him by name. He doesn't just turn to Jesus and say, Lord, which could have happened as well. 
Now there's another slight variance in this verse, which is a little bit more of greater importance that, that we need to take care of here. In the thief's request, he asks Jesus to remember him when Jesus enters his kingdom. The variance is in that preposition translated into, where he says, when you come into your kingdom. The other option is a different preposition in the Greek, which would be translated in rather than into. And I know we're kind of splitting hairs here, but we're, I'm coming to a point. Now, likely, depending, likely whatever translation you're reading right now, it says into. That option is slightly better, has slightly better support from the manuscripts and smarter individuals than me debate this and, and go back and forth on this. But one of my sources that I was looking at said, yeah, this translator, this translator, and these commentators take this view with hesitation. So as my understanding of this, and like I said, there are smarter people than I making these decisions and discussing these things. But as I understand it, I prefer the, the other reading. When you come in your kingdom, here's why. The into option has the idea of remembering the thief in the present. As Jesus will enter into God's presence, glorified that he would remember the thief now and enter and usher him into God's presence. So it's more of a present force to it. The other reading, the when you come in your kingdom, is more futuristic. The inference here is that when Christ comes to establish the kingdom and resurrects the righteous, which was Jewish thought and doctrine, when the Messiah would establish a kingdom and the righteous would be resurrected, his request here would be that the criminal be counted among those righteous resurrected. Remember me when you come in your kingdom. Now this, this talk of resurrection at the kingdom goes back to Daniel chapter 12. In verse 2 of that chapter, there is a reference to the kingdom being established and that the resurrection of the dead, some righteous to eternal life, others resurrected in shame to eternal condemnation or contempt or judgment. Now, this, this one is kind of splitting hairs. Um, either of them could be original, but it is, and it's difficult to know for sure. Like I said, there are smarter people than me discussing this and trying to figure which is the best option. But one of the reasons I prefer the second option is because of how Jesus responds in the next verse. Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And then in verse 43, Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Here in verse 43, we see the saving Lord. The saving Lord. Here Jesus responds and accepts the thief's faith and replies to his request. And the New King James says, assuredly. Um, but he's, he's saying, truly, I say to you. The word there is amen, assuredly, verily, truly. Truly, I am saying to you. He's, he starts with the response with truly because it's hard to believe. This criminal is hanging on a cross, cursed and unredeemable in the eyes of the Jews. 
someone who they would say could never be among the righteous in the kingdom. And the rest of the response is just as astonishing. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. The thief had asked, if we take that second option that we were just talking about, the thief had asked that Jesus remember him at some future time when the kingdom is established and the resurrection of the righteous is happening to be ushered into the kingdom. But Jesus answers with an immediate present. His response shows an immediacy. That very day, the thief would experience God's blessing in in an intermediate state before the resurrection of the kingdom. Jesus tells the thief that he would be in paradise. Now, Jewish teaching held that the dead went to Sheol. And the term paradise came to refer to the abode of the righteous. They believed that there was... Sheol was the, the holding a place of the dead, but it was there were two compartments. Paradise for the righteous and Hades or Gehenna for the unrighteous. Now this, this term paradise is seen as uh, the same as Abraham's bosom in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke chapter 16. There again, we see a place of immediate reception after death for both the righteous and the unrighteous. Lazarus died and is received in Abraham's bosom, received in paradise. The rich man died, and because he was unrighteous, was immediately received into Gehenna. So we see there again, this idea of immediate reception. Now this term of paradise is only used two other times in the New Testament and both have the allusion to the heavenly realm where the righteous are in the presence of God. One is in 2 Corinthians 12, 4, where Paul is referring to the man caught to the third heaven and being in paradise and hearing things not lawful for men to speak or to hear. And then the other is in Revelation 2, verse 7, talking about um, the righteous will be in the paradise of God. So Jesus has promised this man that though he will die today, he will be with Jesus, alive with the righteous. There is an implied here that the man will be conscious in some intermediate state. And awaiting the resurrection and the death and the death was merely transitional we don't have the t- we don't have the time to delve into that section of theology today uh, that's for another time um, but we see this this it intimated implied that um, that he will be in some intermediate state awaiting the resurrection that he will be alive and conscious among the righteous in the presence of God. This thief would experience deliverance and victory, and the deliverance would be immediate. Don't miss the irony that we have in this account. The irony of the salvation of the thief, despite the taunts against Jesus from the others present, 
If you're the Christ, save yourself. You saved others, save yourself. And he's saving the man on the other cross. This man faced down his own mortality. He recognized the judgment of God. He repented, accepted Jesus as the Messiah, asked Jesus to help. This man had no idea of the doctrine of justification. He was never baptized. He didn't become a member of a local church. He didn't know the Baptist distinctives, but he knew he was lost and condemned before God, that there was nothing he could do to change that and sought Jesus as the Messiah to save him. Now today is the 4th of July. Today we as U.S. citizens celebrate that our independence, celebrate our independence from the British Empire, our freedom to self-government, and we remember the war that established a new nation. Today we are proud of our American independence. Sometimes maybe too much. That defiant, individualistic, independent streak that Americans value so much can get in the way of being a Christian. I'll be fine on my own. I'm a good person. I don't need to be a member of a local church. I don't need to be in corporate worship. But in the matter of our salvation and Christian life, the only true independence we have is dependency upon Christ. The thief on the cross didn't have anything to depend on. The small glimmer of hope he had was that he rebuked the other sinner and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. He had a small glimmer of hope that Jesus would remember him and be merciful. He was dependent on Christ. Other than his plea to Christ to remember him, he had nothing. And Christ gave him assurance of his eternal life. So we ask the question today, if you were to die today and stood before God, why should he let you into his heaven? Baptism? Because of your theology? All your good works? Your church membership? If the answer isn't, Jesus Christ died for my sins, was buried and rose again, then there's no getting into heaven. Well, what's your answer? Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the time that we're able to spend in your word. To see the reminders and the truths that we have here. To see the importance of our dependency on Christ. And that without Christ, we have nothing. That we would not be able to enter your presence or stand before you as we do. Help us not to become
proud of our own good things, of how much we give, how much good works we do, how long we've been a church member. Help us not to stand on these things. If we stand on nothing but Christ, if we stand on anything but Christ, we have nothing. We can only stand on Christ alone and in his righteousness. Help us to always keep these thoughts in our minds and in our hearts. That our true independence comes from our dependency on Christ. So Father, we thank you, we love you, and we pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.